Hello, you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I am sitting down and talking with Dr. Jason Brooke. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I am so thrilled that you'd said yes and that you've come on the pod. Um, so for some of my listeners who might not be aware of your work or what you do, can you give them kind of an overview of who you are? Sure. Well, I am an assistant professor of biology at Stephen F. Austin State University. Uh, I'm also an affiliated faculty member in uh, Oklahoma State University's Unmanned Systems Research Institute, which is uh, kind of the, the, the drone and UAV end of, of some of the work that uh, is done uh, on the engineering side. So I'm not an engineer myself, uh, but uh, where that engineering interfaces with animals, that's the part that, that I kind of am a part of. So um, I have my hands in a lot of different kind of cookie jars. So my initial claim her memory in dolphins, and that's kind of where I got my start, at least in, in my PhD. Um, lately, I've gotten involved a little bit more with um, uh, welfare in wild and zoological settings, uh, as well as conservation. And so conservation technology development, uh, making new toys and tools that allow us to help protect wild animals. So that's basically what our lab is focused on these days. Yeah, so I mean, that's a lot of very broad general topics in in a nutshell. <laughs> um, so let's kind of start way back at the beginning. So when did you decide that you wanted to not only get involved in research, but also specifically with marine mammals? Okay, so the family business is animals in my world. Uh, my father being a veterinarian, my mother being part of that practice and, and part of the rehabilitation. So my father and my mother kind of worked together to do a lot of the rehabilitation of animals in the county I lived in, um, uh, you know, through the veterinary hospital. So I grew up with, I think at the peak, there were well over 79 animals on our property that were rehabs or pets or abandoned animals. So I just grew up with all of this and it was just normal for me to, you know, have, you know, the hawk and, and the owl that was in our property. And oh, wow. To go, and to go feed the baby deer that, you know, the hunter had shot the mom and, and you were, we were taking care of the baby. So, I, I mean, this is what I grew up with. Um, and so when I was about three years old, I remember distinctly, uh, it's probably one of the earliest memories I could possibly have, uh, being told, okay, you're going to need to get a job. And, <laughs> yes, most of us do. <laughs> right. I was really disappointed about that because I was enjoying things the way they were. Uh, but yeah, so they say, okay, you're going to get a job. And they, you know, fireman, policeman, you know, really general stuff for, for that a kid can understand. Um, none of that was interesting. Well, you could be a veterinarian like your dad. Yeah. Go on, I said. Okay. <laughs> he, 
sell me more on this idea because this is the thing I knew, right? Because this is yeah. what I what I knew my life to be. So, well, you can be a, a, a doctor for dogs, just like your dad. And I don't really want to do that because, you know, that's fine. But I, you know, what about whales and dolphins? And of course, three-year-old me is thinking, well, whales and dolphins are huge and therefore better. <laughs> it was really all about just they're bigger and more unique and I, nobody gets to yeah. see them. So that's special and different and therefore that must be better. And so at that point, I decided I was going to be a whale and dolphin doctor. Now, when you're young, you think, okay, the only way you work with animals is as a veterinarian because that's kind of how... It's the obvious choice. It's the obvious choice, right. And so for a long time growing up, I thought, okay, I'll be a veterinarian, but I'll work, I'll focus on marine mammals. Um, you know, but after 18 years of watching my father in practice and, and kind of watching his end of things, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, I felt like I lived that life a little bit, you know, yeah. kind of just around that all the time. And I wanted something a little different. So, uh, as I got closer and closer to college, I realized there were other ways at working with animals that people will pay you money to do. Uh, <laughs> and so, so I was like, okay. And I, and, and my advisor, uh, Paul Forrestal, who himself was trained by Lewis Herman, who was one of the godfathers of dolphin cognitive science. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of emulated a little bit what, he, what his interests were, which was on this cognition communication end of things. Yeah. I was like, okay. Animal behavior is a thing that you can do. You can become an animal behaviorist uh, with marine mammals. And so I, at, it was really college level where I started saying, I'm, I'm going to really focus toward being a behaviorist. And so that for me meant not just being good at the behavior of the whales and dolphins. Those I kind of already knew growing up as a kid. I would listen to mm -hmm. Roger Payne's whale records yeah. at night as a kid. I, you know, I knew all the different sounds that everybody made. I knew everything you could know factually about you know, these, these animals that you could get out of a book, but to become an animal behaviorist, you had to study the works of Nico Tinbergen and Conrad Lorenz and, and uh, Von Frisch and all these other, you know, really well-established animal scientists. And so at that point, once I kind of got into that as a field, I said, okay, I'm going to learn everything there is to know about behavior at all animals. And so mm -hmm. my first project was actually looking at frogs. I had, I was given these pet frogs by my mother and I was, you know, she just kind of dropped them off in my, my dorm room and said, here's your, here's, here's some pet frogs for you. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with these. <laughs> had but you I, asked I was, for the pet frogs? No, I did not ask okay. for the pet frogs. I just ended <laughs> up with them, but it was a really serendipitous thing because I had to take a course in comparative animal behavior and we were told and the professor didn't care where we got the animals or how we got the animals but the idea was that you were going to do independent research with those animals in your, okay. your dorm room or wherever you could and knowing that i was going to focus on dolphin communication i had decided okay this so this is this is the first animal behavior project i ever done i'd ever done I, I knew that I wanted to focus on underwater acoustics and these frogs were aquatic frogs. They, yeah. they lived basically in the water. That's what they did. Um, so I said, okay, I'm going to build a hydrophone. And as you do. I know how, as you do, right. <laughs> now I didn't know how to build a hydrophone. So what I did is I took a lapel microphone and I waterproofed it the best way I knew how, which was to go to the student health services and get a non chemical just plain condom 
And I used that as a way to waterproof this microphone because it was it, it allowed perfect sound transduction. And so in points had, for ingenuity. Right. And I was like, okay, I'll figure I'll, I'll do it this way. And that, that's the perfect way to allow sound to transfer into this microphone. So I built essentially with just what I had a, a, a my first hydrophone. And so I take this device, I, I use that in the, in the, in the, in the frog pool. And I started hearing some sounds, sounds that you weren't supposed to hear because they were mating sounds. And okay. these frogs were very young. They were too young to mate. They were, they were kind of pre-mating frogs. And so I was like, why am I hearing these mating calls? Cause the way that works is the female makes her rapping call. Mm -hmm. The male then responds by making his trill call, and then the female will give another call saying to the male, okay, it's okay to mate with me. Okay. Because the females are much larger than the males are, and so the mm -hmm. females really get to choose. Um, and they live in this really murky water, so they usually can't see each other really well um, in, in, in the wild. So this is how they use these acoustic cues to kind of gauge receptivity. Well, the female was making all of these calls that said she wanted to mate. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. You shouldn't be ready to mate. You're not for another year or so. Um, and the male would then respond with his call. But I noticed the, the only time the female would make this call was when I would feed them. So I put the food in, she makes the call, he starts responding, she eats all the food. Ah, so it was a distraction technique. It was a deceptive call. Mm. She, the, the, and the reason they do that is because those females get so much larger than the males that you end up that they need to compete against the males for more food mm. to help facilitate them getting bigger. And so as part of that, they trick the males into basically making mating calls instead of eating when in the presence of food. Interesting. And that was the first animal behavior project I ever did was figuring that thing out. Yeah. And so once I did that, I had two loves now. I not only was in love with the animals, the marine mammals, I was also in love with the science. I was yeah. in love with the art of figuring out why animals are doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. and why do they do what they do? Um, and trying to understand it, not necessarily from their point of view, because we can't think like animals do. Yeah. But trying to understand it from at least an evolutionary point of view. Yeah. And so that became just, you know, I had two passions now. I could, I could really make a job out of this because I not only loved the animals, but I loved the way I was going to interact with them. Yeah, so that's that amazing. Really, yeah, that was really my start into it. And then, of course, you, you know, there were different projects I did over time that got me closer and closer to marine mammals. For a while, I was doing a master's degree working with ground squirrels. So I wanted to make sure that I was always comparatively trained. So it wasn't just dolphin guy. Yeah. Um, it's but, always useful yeah. to get relevant experience, but not exactly the same, I think, in any career field. Right. And I, I think whenever you're a scientist and you write a paper, that first part of that paper, that introduction, isn't necessarily going to be about dolphins. It's going to be an introduction generally into all animals. And then you're going to specify dolphins when you get toward the end of your introduction. Yeah. But to do that, you really do have to understand not just the dolphins as a scientist. You have to understand all the animals and where dolphins fit in to the larger context. So I thought it was really good to get cross-trained in a lot of things. So it isn't just the marine mammals. 
Um, but obviously that's been a big part of my life. Yeah, you yeah. you definitely went on to kind of, pardon the pun, make waves um, in the marine mammal community when you started studying, uh, again, acoustics in marine mammals, specifically dolphins, and also specifically mother calf signature whistles. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So a lot of the work that I had done initially with signature whistles involved understanding the long-term memory that dolphins have for them. So we've been, we were focused on kind of trying to figure out, okay, we know dolphins have these individually specific whistles. So every dolphin has a signature whistle. They give themselves their, so they essentially name themselves in the first year of their lives. And so once they kind of develop out that whistle, they should just keep that indefinitely. Now there are sometimes you'll see a dolphin kind of change a whistle here and there, but for the most part, they keep the same whistle. And so I said, hey, wait a sec, you know, we've got a really good opportunity here if we work with zoos and aquariums to assess how long they can remember these whistles. Because the one thing that's kind of interesting here is if they hold on to the whistles and they don't change them very much, all we have to do is record them and play them back like a telephone company between the different facilities that used to house the animals together because sometimes you move the animals when they move to another life stage yeah you know, of course have, yeah if you have a male and you know he's getting too old to be with mom it's time yep. to go to college so mm -hmm. he goes into a bachelor pod that's perfectly yep. normal and it's good that facilities do that of course you don't want to you don't want to keep that poor male with his mom forever so you know, <laughs> that, those kinds of things so they move around so but you can you can essentially ask the question how long can you remember these whistles and it turns out a very long time. In fact, the memory study showed that dolphins could remember signature whistles over two decades. I mean, not... knowing dolphins and knowing cetaceans, it, it does not surprise me, um, but it's still an outstanding discovery in the scientific community to have that empirically dolphins can remember signature whistles of pod members or, or dolphins that they've known previously for two decades. Yeah. And it's, and it's the longest memory systematically shown in a non-human species to this, to this day still. Um, but I think we'll find that other animals can do a lot of the same stuff too, based upon what kind of social system they have. So yeah. we, we humans have what's called a fission fusion social system which is basically think about your, like your Facebook friends or your Instagram or, you know, whatever your social media of choice is. And you have to think about, okay, whenever they say, oh, you have this friend and then you and you find out you and a friend have another friend in common that you had no idea that you both knew, those kinds of complex social dynamics. The difference is dolphins have to keep track of all that and they don't have a social media platform to keep track of it for them. Yeah, so they, they have, have to remember, to remember all of it. And that's because, you know, you have to remember which dolphins you've worked together with in the past, which dolphins are friends, which are foes, who is kin, who is non-kin, uh, perhaps so that you avoid inbreeding, those kinds of things. And so that was kind of the, the, the start of kind of looking at this in terms of a lot of different dimensions. Um, so kind of to preview some work that we'll have coming out very, very soon. Um, when the memory paper came out, one critique of it was that, well, you know, you've shown that dolphins can remember the whistle, but you didn't show specifically that dolphins could remember the individual who owned the whistle. 
Okay. So this gets a little deep here, but the general idea being if I play signature whistles at an underwater speaker and the dolphin gets all excited about it, we jump to the conclusion, well, clearly you know the dolphin that owns that signature whistle. That's why you're all excited. Mm -hmm. But in truth, one way to think about it is the name may just be familiar and the dolphin has detached the identity of who owns that whistle. And so that's something that we had to think about from a cognitive standpoint as kind of a control. So uh, working with some colleagues uh, when I was a postdoc uh, in St. Andrews in Scotland, we uh, went to- A beautiful place. A beautiful place, very beautiful place. <laughs> and biased, a, but stunning. Uh, of course, <laughs> yes. I miss the accent I do. Um, oh, my I, accent's I a, gone. It, no it's, accent there's, here. There's, there's, <laughs> enough, there's enough still that I can, I can cling to it and say, oh, I, I miss it. Um, but yeah, no. So for, for two years, I was in Scotland and we did this project where we use signature whistles teamed up against another sensory system. Now, the battle plan was to take a big monitor and put it in the water and then play mm -hmm. the signature whistles that would match or mismatch the visual image of that dolphin. And if the nice. dolphin is... If the dolphins responded more to a match than a mismatch, it would tell you that the dolphins know how to assign the whistle to the mm -hmm. ones who own it. That there's some sort of recognition yeah. going and on that there. The, yeah. And they're associating it. They're saying, mm -hmm. hey, look, I know that that whistle belongs to this individual. And that's how you typically do it. It's called a cross-modal study. Um, but, you know, the thought of trying to go from facility to facility with a 200-pound monitor, underwater monitor, it was not good. And so I was reading some work by a famous dolphin scientist named Ken Norris, and he was talking about dolphins, and this is going to be kind of gross, but dolphins are dolphins, they're not people, they do no. their own thing. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that he talked about was noticing that, uh, I think it was the spinner dolphins were swimming with their mouths open through each other's excretia plumes. Oh, that basically, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, <laughs> when you basically. work when you work with these animals, you you learn what they're like, and you just kind of have to be like, ah, oh, yeah, makes yeah. sense. They're, they're under no obligation to to engage in human decency. Um, so right, so they were actually tasting each other's urine. Okay. Now the question became, why were they doing that, and was there any social information associated with that? Mm -hmm. And so the hope was that we could maybe show that not only could dolphins have what we call a representational understanding of those signature whistles, meaning they use them exactly like we use names. Yeah. But dolphins could identify each other with a new social system, a, a new um, uh, uh, social modality, basically meaning they can use chemical cues. Yeah. To, just like a dog sniffing a fire hydrant, knowing all yeah. the dogs that were there before. Well, I mean, there's hormones and everything in urine. Like uh, mm. there, there's a lot of information there. We think there's probably some steroid compounds that may be in okay. the urine that they can they can uh, affix on. And what's interesting about it is that uh, when we did test this, dolphins responded quite well to familiar urine compared to unfamiliar urine, mm. which told us they can recognize urine from dolphins they've associated with before. Okay. And so that was a that not only is that a new thing for dolphins, that's a new thing for anything with a backbone. <laughs> okay. Because, <laughs> because dolphins can't smell. They don't yeah. have a sense of smell because mm -hmm. they've lost their olfactory bulb. 
uh, over Which for enrichment purposes is very annoying because as we all know in zoos, scent enrichment is one of one, the easiest to implement. And two, it's fantastic for the animals. And it's just something that you cannot do with cetaceans. Right. But social taste is a thing. Okay. That is something that they do have. And this is a brand new finding that's part of this study. Again, a study that was supposed to be about signature whistles. And now we're under, we're, we're, we're detecting and discovering mm-hmm. new chemical social recognition capabilities. So that's, that's going to be an exciting part of the study as it, as it comes out. Definitely. Uh, very, very soon now. Oh gosh. It's been a process to go to, to get it there, but uh, we'll have it out very soon. So everybody can kind of take a look at that research. Uh, but yeah, not only that, but we were able to pair the chemical cues with the signature whistles. It turns out dolphins respond more when you have a match between the chemical cue and the signature whistle. Amazing. And that tells us that the dolphins are pairing mm-hmm. the whistle to the chemical cue. Not only that, and this is going to be really kind of cool for the for your audience here. There are not a ton of times this happens, but occasionally, if you present just the chemical cue. Sometimes the dolphins will whistle the signature whistle <gasps> of the dolphin who owns that urine cue. Amazing. Oh my goodness. So they're they're basically, well, I know that this is maybe slightly anthropomorphic, but like calling out for them, like, are you there? <laughs> it, it's a it's a labeling. Yeah. Say it's it's a it's a labeling uh technique. And so eventually the dolphins do kind of get what you're getting at with this. Mm-hmm. And they you know this is doesn't involve any training at all we just start spontaneously applying these these associations and the dolphins get it um which is why i love working with dolphins they're so good at compensating for my bad research design (laughs) (laughs) they're like all right we figured out what you're trying to get at we'll we'll help you out here yeah and and, and we'll we'll do the study with you so that's so interesting yeah i love that but let's go back quickly um for signature whistles in particular, for for maybe for some of my listeners that don't have a great understanding about what exactly they kind of mm-hmm. sound like or how dolphins use them in their communication, can you give us a little breakdown of, for instance, quote unquote, if dolphins are saying a sentence, um, mm-hmm. if they start with their signature whistle and then say something, or if they pair signature whistles with who they're trying to talk to, or mm-hmm. I'm saying talking, obviously communicate to. Um, Give us a little rundown of that. Sure. So the signature whistle system is considered contact calls. So dolphins can't always see each other really well in the uh, ocean setting. It's just visibility underwater is rough. And so the signature whistle system, we think, was devised to solve two problems. One, to locate pod mates when they kind of move away from from your group. And two, to deal with the fact that dolphins don't have voices. See, a dolphin can't have a voice because the di- the deeper they dive, the higher the pitch. And so they, they don't have, like, a lot of animals will use voice cues and can get a lot of the same stuff done because they can recognize the different voices of their different uh, social partners. Dolphins don't have that. So they'd had to invent a different system uh, that would work for this. And so the signature whistle is, is it, basically, as the dolphins kind of introduce themselves into the wild, um, dolphins present their own signature whistle when they want to either reunite or typically in, in social interactions, they'll produce their own signature whistle. So 
Um, if it's, you know, you and I, and we're meeting out in the open ocean, it'll be Jason, Jason, Jason. It won't be me saying, Hazel, it'll be, it'll be me saying, Jason, Jason, Jason. And that way, you know who I am. Kind of the reverse so of, kind what, of, of what humans do. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. That being said, though, it is not impossible for dolphins to use each other's signature whistles. They have done that in the past. Um, so sometimes you'll see a case where a dolphin in one pool will call out for a dolphin in a different pool, and you'll see them use that signature whistle. But typically what happens is they'll only do one, we call a loop. So some, when a dolphin owns the signature whistle, you'll hear them do multiple loops of it. So it'll be... Okay, so that would be the dolphin whistling its own signature whistle three times. Mm -hmm. But if you want to call that dolphin over, you whistle it once and you put a little error at the end, usually by a little let it up sweep in the in the tone. <whistles> right? So a little error in there. And that helps to to say, okay, I'm not stealing this identity. I'm just calling you over. Okay. Uh, at least that's an assumption of what it might be. Mm -hmm. We don't exactly know that for sure. But generally, that's what we think is going on. So if you see one bout with a little bit of an error at the end, that is not the dolphin who owns that whistle. It's another dolphin using that whistle um, to call over somebody or to, to engage with that other individual socially. So there are some rules to it. Um, in the data I've collected, and this isn't always agree with different populations. I think different populations might have slightly different rules. But when I've seen dolphins that don't know each other, I see them more likely to copy the whistle of the dolphin they're meeting. And I, I've always hypothesized that that might have some way of helping to uh, help the individual remember that whistle if they produce mm -hmm. it themselves. Um, some, some authors have found some differences associated with like lots of signature whistle reproductions amongst dolphins that know each other really well. So there's a lot of confusion necessarily. There's not one story here on yeah. this part of it. But generally speaking, if you um if you're meeting a dolphin and you're meeting for the first time you'll try to copy each other's whistles a little bit and then introduce your own uh if you know each other really well you'll just produce your own signature whistle and they'll produce their own signature whistle sometimes when you're at a facility and everyone does like a name check you'll start, see one dolphin who's like the matriarch or the patriarch will make their signature whistle and then you see everybody just make their own signature whistles all the way through the pools we're all here we're all here right <laughs> president like, correct <laughs> president correct yeah exactly and so sometimes you'll see stuff like that happen it's great when that happens because i get nice little exemplars to use for whistle yeah products. it must be great um you get them all the in science. sequence yeah, yeah. I, I remember love when they do that yeah when i was working well interning um at dolphins plus in key largo in florida they were doing some research on mother calf um signature whistles and I remember the trainers adapting it for um, the cue, go get your baby. So the original training of go get your baby was, you know, walking the, the mother over, like, get your baby, come back to station. And then eventually it was just, you know, the hand signal, the SD, go get your baby. And the dolphin would physically go and get the baby and come back. And then the dolphins were like, oh, the trainers have stopped walking over why am I going to get my baby physically? I'm just going to call them over. And then that's when, you know, the, the mother dolphin was just signature whistle, baby, come back. Um, so yeah, I just love how important it is to be able to study these animals in managed care like that, because you can, you know, all of the relationships between all of the animals and you can study it at such close quarters. And it has such 
great implications for helping wild counterparts. And I know that you're talking a lot right now about animal welfare and also um, developing different ways to study animals out in the wild. So what are your thoughts about, um, about that at the moment, how it's progressing? Sure. Um, so one of the things I've gotten interested in lately, uh, it's probably for the last two, three years, um, is looking at welfare from an acoustic point of view. So these animals are acoustically driven, I think, more than I would say anything else. These these animals have an acoustic world, mm -hmm. whereas we would, I think, define ourselves as organisms with a visual world. Um, and so while we're really good about focusing on toys and we're really good at focusing on kind of social stimulation, what we don't always focus on is stimulation across the acoustic modality. So. Uh, one of the things I've been interested in is promoting within zoos and aquariums new innovations along the lines of looking at acoustic welfare, uh, whether that be uh, just maintaining, you know, pool noise and tank noise and looking, yeah. you know, filtration and how that affects mm -hmm. the animals, you know, uh, construction stuff. And I think a lot of a lot of facilities are starting to become really aware of, of monitoring that. Uh, but there's also the next generation and the next level up which is to look at it like, how do we apply enriching sounds to the pool? And it's not just playing music, because most animals that they have the opportunity in a zoological setting to control the music being played around them, they'll usually just turn it off. Uh, okay. If you, the, if you give the chimpanzees the <laughs> iPad and you let them control the music in the, in the, in the facility, they just turn it off. Okay. Um, but so it's not about just presenting them with music, it's presenting them with appropriate social signals. Mm -hmm. And so we found that when we did the signature whistle memory stuff, you could play certain whistles to dolphins and just get them very, very excited and, and kind of socially interacting. Um, there were interesting implications for dolphins telling us through their responses who their social preferences were. You oh, know, amazing. Dolphin swims up more for a signature whistle, you know, repeatedly over over a course of a study. You may say to yourself, hey, maybe these dolphins need to be back together again. Um, yeah. Because there sure seems to be a real social, uh, a strong social bond there that mm -hmm. is hard to assess in any other way. So mm -hmm. that's another way of looking at acoustics and welfare. And then, you know, at some point, perhaps we can have dolphins start making telephone calls with each other and acoustically communicating from facility to facility. Oh, get them on a little Zoom call. Little Zoom calls, right? Because the technology yeah. is now at a point where the sampling frequencies, which is the sounds that the that these companies are using in their platforms for Zoom or, or mm -hmm. Skype, or, it's now gotten to a point where there's enough bandwidth that we can produce fairly good quality whistles through these technologies. So, I mean, you definitely do see a huge difference in behavior in animals when you start playing acoustic sounds, specifically acoustic sounds within that species. Um, when I was at Marineland, uh, we actually had, there was a pod of killer rails that were very lost in Genoa Harbor a few years ago. There were like four, I don't know if you heard about it. There were four, I think five individuals. There was a dead calf who was a newborn and then the whales stayed there for, I think, two or three weeks. So um, both the Aquarium of Genoa and Marineland were the closest facilities who knew anything about cetaceans. And we were, you know, communicating with the Coast Guard and researchers flew um, 
in from another university in Italy. And they had a big database of um, vocalizations of killer whales from Iceland because the aim was to try and figure out where those killer whales came from. Like, why were they in Genoa? Where did they come from? So they put the hydrophone in the water there and recorded their calls and matched them to the Icelandic um, kind of dialect. And then those researchers came to Marineland and played those sounds in the water for our whales to see if they would make similar calls. And not only did our whales immediately pod swim together, immediately they were like, we're going, they're almost as if they were like, where are these whales? <laughs> What's happening? There's newcomers here. And then they started making all of these calls, calls we'd never heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the researchers played us the database, we were like, we know behaviorally exactly what all of those calls mean because mm-hmm. like Keo will make this call when he wants to be with his mom or you know the boys will make this call when they're playing together um which was just you know so incredibly interesting for us to be able to see that so I'm so interested in all of this research for welfare because I am completely on your side that I think it, it's one of those untapped resources that we have at the moment that we could really use to boost welfare with our animals. Yeah. I think when I started my PhD work in, so I started, I think it was started this project about 2008 uh, when we were started focusing on the memory research and the technology had just gotten to a point where I could go from facility to facility with something that approximated two suitcases full of stuff. Yeah. And so now we're at a point where we can fit all that technology. The amplifier that used to be the size of like, you know, 20 pounds, I can now fit that amplifier in a carry-on and it's only about, you know, half a pound. So the equipment and technology has gotten to a point where all of these things are much more feasible and possible than they ever were. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I first got started with a lot of acoustics and zoo settings, um, nobody was moving underwater speakers and amplifiers and stuff like that from zoo to zoo. Um, it just wasn't a thing. Uh, now that's something that is quite, that, that you see a lot of. Um, and so now the, now the issue is just the technology's there. Now we just have to have the imagination and uh, the inventiveness to say, okay, how do we apply this technology to improving uh, the acoustic uh, enrichment environment for these animals so that there's a lot more exciting stuff going on uh, across all their senses, um, not just the tactile and the visual, but these these strongly important co- acoustic signals as well. So yeah, I mean, the technology is now meeting us and I think that's a really important part of it. So, you know, and I think, you know, facilities are starting to really take a lot of this seriously um, as they're looking for, okay, what's the next generation of in, uh, of invention uh, when it comes to welfare? And I think yeah. facilities are starting to really think about, okay, what are the acoustics looking like? And then I'm going to start arguing, okay, now we got to start thinking about the chemical cues yeah. uh, in the water, you know, because that's now something that we, we need to be understanding more and looking at more. So. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. You know, I, as a as a trainer, as a facility, as a researcher, no matter, you know, what position you're in working with animals, you should always be striving to improve. And striving to improve doesn't mean you were doing anything wrong previously. It's just we're continuing to learn, we're continuing to grow. And 
as we do and as we learn more, we can we can implement that and really improve, you know, the lives of our animals. And further than that, try to use what we've learned to help their wild counterparts. Yeah. And, and I'll be very honest with you at this point. If, you know, people say, well, how would you feel about being a locked in a pool or you know a dolphin tank and i said actually right now i'd much rather be in a <laughs> setting if i'm a dolphin than out in the wild dealing with what these poor animals have to deal with out there so, i think especially if you were born there especially yeah, if that's, especially if if that's what there. you know yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And these dolphins born under human care i think are are doing are now in much better place than the poor animals that are out there in the wild getting caught in these nets you know, and dealing with all this stressful stuff that humans are doing out there. So, you know, and generally speaking, if we can even make their life. So I, I would argue now that there's a lot of reason to believe that animals under human care are in some cases doing a lot better than animals in the wild. And now I'm going to make the claim that that we can still always do more and it can still be even more better. Oh, <laughs> to absolutely. Be, to be under human care. Um and, and I think that's, I, I wish the public got more of a sense of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, maybe if all these protests against zoos and aquariums had occurred in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, there might have been something to, more to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that we come after zoos and aquariums now when they're doing so well, and they're really like taking it to the next level. And, the and also doing so much good. And so much good, and they're 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 helping me to develop new technologies mm-hmm. that are going to help save wild animals. And and yep. now we're going after zoos and aquariums when they're when they're like doing awesome and they're really helping out. That's what never made any sense to me. I'm like these yeah. the zoos and aquariums are like my partners in developing this stuff and and helping us save the wild animals with our yeah. new drones and our new technological systems for collecting hormones in the wild. It's all about working with zoos and aquariums to, to yeah. test this Can you stuff. talk about that a little bit? Your, sure. What you're kind of diving diving into. God, I use way too many like ocean-related metaphors. Well, yeah, this, this is one where <laughs> I don't want it to go diving because um, part of what we've been working on over the last few years is the development of a new drone that is built specifically for cetaceans, uh, small cetaceans, uh, so dolphins, porpoises, things like that. Um, Because this is, uh, if anyone's ever heard of the snot bot, there's a snot bot that they fly up in in the northeast of the U.S. uh, that collects blow samples, which are basically where the, when the big whale comes up, chuffs the big, low, you know, big, spurt of of snot into the air yeah and let me and tell they, you it stinks like if you've yeah. ever been on the receiving end of killer real snot first thing in the morning sometimes it goes in your hair it'll go in your face that smell is with you the rest of the day yeah no getting rid of it yeah, oh, it's awful. A, a funny video of me taking a big loogie in the face oh and my hair just flying up it looked like i look like wolverine oh with my, my God. hair just flying up everywhere and it just was it's just such a glamorous forever. job it's it's it yeah <laughs> you can never you can never be the fancy person if you work in animals i just oh no it's very hard it's just very hard anybody who can pull it off i i all the credit in the world but yeah so so the but that is the goal of the drone is to collect that stuff right and so if i fly one of these big drones that they use with the big whales um to try to collect that from a dolphin it isn't going to work because the dolphins can hear that coming a mile away. They don't like it. They evade it. 
And on top of it, the the blades on the drone, the spinning rotors on that drone, spin all that snot that we need away. And so we can't okay. do a health assessment with that mm -hmm. type of drone. So we've been developing a new type of drone that is not only visually stealthy because it's it, we know how to fit it into the blind spot of where the dolphin can see, can't mm -hmm. see, can't can't see. Um, we also have it acoustically stealthy. So. We've been using kind of studies of the dolphins' hearing abilities, studies of their visual field where they can see around them to develop a new drone that is as stealth as we can make it so that we can come in, fly the drone close to the animal, collect the sample, and move away from the animal safely before they ever know that anything happened. And the reason we want to do this is because there's just a lot of animals in the wild that are in such bad shape that if you were to try to do a health assessment with them, the way that you do health assessments now, which is basically to take the animal and restrain it and try to take a blood sample, uh, those animals wouldn't do very well with that. Yeah. And so we want- They're to already under so much stress physiologically, exactly. that then putting them under more stress, yeah. It would give exactly. you inaccurate results as well, apart from anything else. It, it would probably, right. If you don't collect that sample very quickly, your, your, your results are tainted by the handling. Mm -hmm. And on top of it, the animals are in rough shape anyway. And plus, yeah. there's a lot of animals that aren't really reachable by a boat, but they could be reachable by a new drone system. So we've been working with uh, Jamie Jacob and his team at the Unmanned Systems Research Institute at Oklahoma State University to develop this next generation drone platform. Uh, we at the Bruck Lab, we, uh, Savannah uh, Damiano, who's our graduate student, is uh, our drone pilot. So she works with them as well to kind of develop um, kind of the, the, the whole plan around how we collect the sample, kind of having accessory drones out there spot, spotting for the pod and then using the hormone collecting system to go out and collect the samples. And ideally, you know, I see all my friends who work in these with these really pristine animals and these really wonderful, beautiful environments. And I'm so jealous because our main research site is going to be Galveston Bay which mm -hmm. is like a heavily industrialized, you know, kind of sludgy area with <laughs> tons of boat traffic and nothing, you know, you don't get beautiful palm trees in the background, you get oil refineries. Oh no. So, yeah, but that's actually the kind of population we want to study because we want to yeah. see, you know, how, why are these animals still here? Mm -hmm. Why are you here with, you know, cruise ships constantly going in and out of the area and, 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 and all the tankers and the noise and the, and the industrial runoff, all of it. And you're still here. How are so, you still yeah. here? I mean, that was the same thing going back to those killer rails in Genoa. I don't know if they were totally lost, if something had happened. But yeah, same thing, Genoa Harbor. It's hugely industrial. Like Because the whales were there, it actually played havoc. Um, with all of the the tankers and all of the container ships coming in because the, the government was like, no, you can't. There's like a pod of killer whales here and we don't know why they're there. Like you can't come in. And yeah, they stayed there for like three weeks and you're just like, why? It doesn't seem like a nice place. No. <laughs> um, and these dolphins call this home. This is their home. Yeah. This is where they're resident, you know? And so we've got, I've got a lot of my great, great colleagues and friends who work with these populations that are, you know, you can get it. I get why there are dolphins in Sarasota Bay. I get the dolphins that are on the coast of Hawaii. I don't get why any dolphin is in Galveston Bay at all, but they're there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so that's part of what we want to figure out, you know, how resistant can a dolphin be to anthropogenic effects or human made effects? Yeah. Um, and that's part of what this drone is about. And it's part of, you know, getting these comparative assessments between different populations to understand now the wild welfare. So we talk a lot about captive welfare. This is the wild welfare component because we are interested in how animals in the wild are, are, are enjoying their existence or, or, or whether or not they're having real problems surviving and thriving. I love and that. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And it's really where the future is headed for this field is definitely much more in tandem with researchers, with wild populations. It's going to be much less over just focused on um, being an entertainment source or being a theme park or being a educational presentation. You know, that's still a big part of it. But it's also a move towards trying to improve welfare standards for our animals and also their wild counterparts. Um, yeah. If you and could, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. For it's fun for the facilities. It's fun for the researchers. Yeah. I mean, I thought I hated research at university and then I got involved with it with animals and I was like, actually, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's really cool. It's fun to be a part of it. And I think it's really fun when we have trainers and researchers coming together to solve problems. Yep. And it's just, it's, you know, because we're all like, whether you come from the training point of view, you come from the research point of view, it's still about solving problems. Oh, absolutely. The definition of the jobs, right? And so we are all just, that's how we all think. And I think mm -hmm. there's such commonality there. Um, that what really, would you, yeah. what would you say to um, anyone who is potentially, you know, against captivity or doesn't really see why it's so important towards helping wild animals. What is the kind of takeaway message that you would give them? I, you know, one of the things I say a lot, and I, I've heard it from others too, if we didn't have zoos, we'd have to invent them. Because I love that. <laughs> If we did, right, because if we didn't have them, where else would we test this stuff? Where else mm -hmm. would we learn how to develop these technologies? The One of the biggest tools out there right now is the D-tag, the data tag. And so this is a, a little suction cup backpack that fits on the back of a whale or a dolphin. Well, this was invented by Mark Johnson and Peter Tyak. Initially, the technology was about trying to figure out which dolphin was signature whistling in a pool. That's where the technology came from. And they, you know, it was basically put a hydrophone into a little backpack, put the backpack on the dolphin. And then when they swim around in, in the pool environment, their little light would go off if that was the dolphin that was whistling. Cause it was so hard to tell which dolphin was whistling. Cause yeah. at the time we'd only use one hydrophone mm -hmm. and that didn't give you any idea who was making what sounds. And so that was where the technology came from. Well, you know, fast forward a few years, and it's not only got a hydrophone in it, it's got accelerometers. It can tell you the body temperature of the animal. It can tell you the depth they're diving at. It can tell you where they are on the planet. All of these things fitting onto microchips onto the back of the animals. And we're studying whales that we only see for like two minutes a day because they dive so deeply and spend so mm -hmm. much time under the water that we weren't able to get data from them. That was built by zoo partnerships. You couldn't have that. And then now they, you know, SeaWorld has been participating with with blue whale research for using data tags, you know? So you don't get modern conservation 
without zoos and aquariums. You just don't. You might say to yourself, well, I, I don't like zoos. I don't like, I don't like this. I don't like that. That may be, but you cannot deny that without zoos and aquariums, we would be in a much worse place with marine conservation when it comes to marine mammals. And that's just the truth of it. Now, we will always be working toward saying, okay, how do we make these animals' lives better in zoos oh, and aquariums? Oh, of course. And I think that's what uh, the other thing I want people to understand, it, you know, these, it's the internet, right? So everybody who reads the internet, they just learn to demonize those who don't agree with them. Mm -hmm. When you look at the people and you, and you actually tell the stories of the trainers and the scientists and the people who own the facilities, you find out these are not villains. These are not yeah. grubby, materialistic, horrible human beings. These are people who love these marine mammals just as much as you do. And in fact, in some ways, they made it about their lives. They sacrificed a good paying life because uh, you don't get paid a lot to work with animals. I don't care what level you're working with them at. Mm -mm. It's, it's, always, it's always a problem. Um, you, these people were willing to sacrifice so much to work with these animals. They're good people and they yeah. care for the animals that they work with. And you say, well, I just don't think that these animals can live a good life in a zoo and aquarium. And I said, well, come see them. Mm -hmm. Come see how they're how these animals are living their lives. I agree, there are some bad facilities out there. There's no getting around that. That's just not everybody can be awesome. But when you go to an accredited facility and you talk with the people who work with the animals and they can show you what's going on there, and they will. There's no secrets. That's the one thing about zoos and aquariums. You can't keep secrets like that. These animals oh, no. are out on display mm -hmm. every day. Thousands and thousands of people seeing these animals daily, judging the quality yeah. of their care as if they're experts. So believe me, it's yeah. not like you can hide anything. If there's a problem, no. it's going to be it's going to be picked up at some point here. Yeah, so, that was one of the things that um, I loved so much about working at Marineland because we had um, it was kind of a circular area around our whole stadium, like the stadium and all five pools visitors could walk within the stadium all day and round the back no matter what pool you were in where you were with the whale you could be seen by guests at all times and yeah if there was ever someone there who was a bit unsure or like oh I'm not sure how I feel about it I would always just say just stay and watch like mm -hmm. if you have 30 minutes 45 minutes just sit mm -hmm. in the sun in the shade and just watch what we do you will see us loving on the animals, playing with the animals, yep. doing training sessions, doing research, um, exactly. you know, and it's for me, the most important thing going forward in this field is that more zoos and aquariums are open. That means being open with their guests. It means showing more areas, but also on social media, being open and mm -hmm. really being transparent and showing people we have nothing to hide. There, there is nothing untoward going on behind closed doors. Right. Please come and see for yourself. Right. And I've been to probably more facilities than most people. And I'll tell you, if I, you know, growing up in a veterinary hospital, prioritizing animal care and welfare the way I, my family has, if I saw stuff that I didn't like, I'd make, I'd be very loud about yes. it. Um, so, you know, my views have been shaped by watching these people be professional with these animals. Yeah. Um, and my feeling is, is that most people uh, who have real problems with zoos and aquariums have problems with zoos and aquariums because the internet told them to. 
they haven't seen these animals for themselves and they haven't really had the experience to understand the quality of the care that these animals are receiving. So I challenge anyone with these views. If you really have a problem with zoos and aquariums, go to your local zoo, go to your local aquarium, talk to the people there and get a firsthand understanding of it. And if you're I still, think... yeah, if you still have a problem with the zoo afterward, I'd be surprised. Yeah. I think also um, just quickly, there was, um, you made the point of talk to the people that work there. Don't jump to conclusions about anything that you see. Um, you know, if you are an animal behaviorist, you will be able to make an educated guess about what is going on. Um, but for instance, I get videos sent to me of killer whales and people asking, you know, what does this behavior mean? And I say, well, I don't know. I know killer whales, but I don't know that facility. I don't know what happened the minute before. I don't know, you know, what's going on socially. So I can't give, you know, an exact definition of why that behavior is occurring. And I remember this was even before I was a trainer and I visited a safari park, um, a very good safari park in Scotland. I don't know if you ever visited Blair Drummond in Stirling. I don't know. Maybe you've heard I've of it. I've been to Stirling many times, but I hadn't been yeah? to that one. Okay. It's yeah. where I actually started with sea lions. Oh, wow. Um and we actually sat down to watch the sea lion show. I went with my university friends. So we were all studying biology and psychology. And um, one of my friends was like, oh, I'm not sure if, you know, we should be here. And I was already like, well, you've already bought a ticket, so you might as well stay. Um, and she pointed out that the sea lions were rocking a lot on their stands. So they looked very excited. And she was like, oh, at least it looks like they're having fun. And kind of already at that point, I was thinking, is it because they're having fun or I don't know. And then when I started uh, working there with those sea lions, um, I was told that earlier on in their training, when they were young, they were reinforced for doing that because it made them look excited. So just because you're seeing a behavior happen doesn't mean you know why it's happening exactly. Right. And I think that that's an important caveat to that because you really do have to get a sense. Look, this takes training. I've been, I've been, training as an animal behaviorist for over two decades. So when I understand, you know, behavioral stereotypes, or if I understand, you know, uh, modal action patterns or fixed action patterns or, you know, stimulus response patterns, you know, that is a lot of training that goes into my interpretation of behavior. Mm -hmm. And even still, I'm like, I still need context. You can't Absolutely. show me the two. The, the the 30 second video PETA took and tell me yes. that this means anything until I get yes. a, an actual behavioral repertoire. And it's something that the media are so quick to say, this mm. is what's happening. And this, ex this is exactly what it means. You know, yeah. we had, you know, the case of Morgan, um, she mm -hmm. slid up on the slide out and the headlines were all killer is trying to commit suicide. And I, I was there that day. And I remember guests asking me as they were leaving, it was after the show, um, oh, is, is the whale okay? She's up on the slide out. And I was like, oh yeah, the, the matriarch is just a little bit annoyed at her. So she's been displaced onto the slide out, but you know, Kohana will let her back in in a couple of minutes, it's fine. And, mm -hmm. you know, as a trainer, you can't really step in in that moment because then you would just be reinforcing Kohana for displacing Morgan. So you do mm -hmm. have to kind of be a little bit careful with the social aspect. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like two minutes later, Morgan slid back into the water. The whales were fine. We called them mm -hmm. over for swimming together and we reinforced them for swimming together. Well, but yeah. yeah, I guess someone took a video or a picture before, you know, the guests yeah. had left the area and, and there was nothing we could do. 
And again, that's evidence of the fact that these animals are on display 24 seven. Mm -hmm. If anything happens in any which way, it will, it will be a thing. Yeah. And what we don't see are the 300,000 whales that are killed every year because they got tangled in fishing line. Mm -hmm. And we don't see all of the whales and dolphins that are crushed by boats mm -hmm. or cut open by those. I mean, if, if we're, you know, Morgan having an experience of displacement while, you know, being, you know, obnoxious and, and something we is not preferred to see, that is blown up and magnified. And yet we don't ever focus on the stuff that we don't see in the ocean that mm -hmm. is killing the vast majority of these animals. So yeah. it's all about perspective and it's all about, you know, you know, and again, you know, there's lots of advocates for dolphins and whales in captivity. I would prefer to see more advocates for whales and dolphins in the wild. Yeah. I, I, yes. I, I would like that some more mm -hmm. uh, because that's where they need the help. I'm not worrying yes. about the well-provisioned animals in zoos and aquariums with trainers loving on them all day. I'm really worried about the right whale that has, you know, half a ton of fishing line on her while she's mm -hmm. trying to raise a calf. Yes. In, you know, off Massachusetts. So that's what I need people to advocate for. And I need, that's what I want people to con, you know, contact their congressperson about, not about SeaWorld. You yes. know, I, I, SeaWorld has the least of the worries. They're in fact, they're helping. Yeah. What we don't have is the, the advocates for the animals in the wild as much because we've been so distracted by the blackfish effect. We've been so distracted by, you know, all the, the, the media hits on, on, on zoos and aquariums, mm -hmm. you know, and that's how we're going to, we lose species. We lose the vaquita yeah. at some point here. We're going to, we've lost river dolphins, uh, Chinese river dolphins because of some of these things. We take our eye off the ball and it gets yeah. worse out there. So yeah, to me, it's the blackfish distraction. That's what mm -hmm. I call it, you know, yeah. and yeah, but generally speaking, we are doing a lot to try to help uh, the wild animals. We For are sure. Working with and aquariums to develop new technology. So it's not all hopeless. Absolutely not. I to think that um, we're, we are really getting better at everything that we do um, when it comes to not only zoos and aquariums, but in terms of the technology with animals in the wild. There's a lot of great young scientists coming up who are doing a lot of amazing work and uh, you know, they're, they're, they're developing new technologies and, and new techniques. And so there's a lot of reason to be hopeful. Absolutely. Um, but we've got to support these folks. Yes. Well, support you. We do. Um, thank you so much, Jason, for coming on and sharing all of this wisdom with us. I've definitely learned uh, some new things and it's definitely, you know, it gives me so much hope um, for the future, both for our animals and for their wild counterparts. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I really had a great time. I enjoyed this. You're more than welcome. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please do not forget to like, rate, and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus. And don't forget to tag me at Dreaming with Hazel. I will catch you guys next week.